Good evening, I'm Amy Galloway. My husband Alex and I are in Malaga, Spain. And uh, I got real teary driving up here today. I actually have been connected to First EVN for more than half my life. I came here as a 25-year-old. We were newlyweds. Our first Sunday was Ronnie's installation Sunday. And we, were, uh, we birthed all three of our kids here. And Alex worked for 10 years with Christ Community Medical Clinic as a psychologist, working down on Third Street. And then uh, you all sent us out um, for about 16 years ago. We were with CRM. It's now called Novo. Um, so it is uh, a joy for me to be here with you. You have, I think, literally from the time my kids were born, this church has supported them. Uh, I was on bed rest for 10 weeks, and you all brought me meals. Uh, then they brought me meals for four months after my kids were born, so almost six months worth of meals. Um, and so I prayed over my twins um, that they would know they were held by the church from the time they were in the womb. And you have held them even further. Um, you have supported them to go to school. We too, um, as David was saying, we come from, in a, are we in a very shame-based system in Spain? And so we pulled our kids, well, from one shame system to another, but that's beside the point. But you paid for them to go to an international school, which was a fantastic education. And we now have two of our daughters at Wheaton, and one is at um, Hope College. And honestly, those children have been raised by you and cared for by you. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Tonight, we are going to share some different ideas about how you personally can be involved in missions. As I prayed for this, um, I wrote this talk several days ago, and then the Lord woke me up at 3.33 last night, and we rewrote it. <laughs> so this is a middle-of-the-night sermon. Um, I think we can all agree that we are living in an extraordinary era. The rapidity of change that we have seen in the last few decades is over the top. I can't imagine those of you who've been on this earth for 80 years, what you have seen in this span um, of your lifetime. Globalization has connected us through the internet, through trade, through transportation. Where now we live and a, a, ver a video is posted online, it goes viral and can be seen around the world by billions of people. And viruses can shut down a continent, <laughs> as it is doing right now in China. We have seen in recent years such a rise in division, hatred, terrorism, and we have an election season on the horizon. Lord have mercy. <laughs> Even natural disasters have statistically increased 30% over the last 15 years. You are not imagining things. I know every generation says, this is probably the generation Jesus is going to come again. But for us, it may very well be true. And it's not just the culture that is in upheaval. The church is under assault. Everywhere, we're hearing predictions that the church is dying, right? All the polls, losing, the, losing every generation out the window. This is nothing new, these doomsday reports. 
Several centuries ago, G.K. Chesterton said this, Christianity has died many times and risen again, for it had a God who knew the way out of the grave. At least five times the faith has all but, at, to all appearance, gone to the dogs, but in each of these five cases, it was the dog that died. <laughs> there is a dog that's going to die in this scenario, and it is not Christianity. You need to know that. But many, many Christians are struggling right now with doubt. I was sitting even last, this last week with a high-level leader of a, a large uh, American ministry, and in this moment of vulnerability as we were talking, he said, I don't know what to think anymore. I'm beginning to think that the evangelical church is just corrupt. And I had this visceral response from my gut, and it just welled up, and my eyes filled with tears, and I just said, she is not corrupt. She's asleep. She's not lit. She is sick, but she is not corrupt. We the church, have been the frog in the cooking pot that has slowly acclimated to a fallen culture until we are no longer salt and light. But she is not corrupt. The dog is going to die, not Christianity. God is putting out a call to the remnant looking for those who will choose not to be defiled by the world and to live into the guidelines of scripture no matter what it costs them, and it will cost you. I want to share a verse that was meaningful to me in the last couple years. It's kind of a random verse that the Lord spoke to me from. Um, it, it comes from that little story in Acts of that strange situation where there's the boy on the third floor who falls asleep, falls out the window, dies, and then they go down and raise him back to life. There's a little verse in there that just caught my attention, and it said, now there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. Sometimes don't you look at these verses and just think, that's a little random. <laughs> we're talking about a guy dying. Why are we talking about the lamps, you know? Um, and so, but I could not let it out of my mind. And so the next morning I got up from my quiet time and I, I asked the Lord what it meant. And he just said, we have finished the era of big lamps. We have finished the era of big personality driven ministry. At that time, within just a few months of there, Billy Graham had passed away, and we were seeing lots and lots of articles about how the, there was an end of the era, right? And there was this amazing era of evangelism and, and uh, missions for the church. But this is the era where God is inviting every person to be lit. Not just your pastors, not just your missionaries, not just your big names, in, in Christian ministry. There are going to be, and there are, dynamic movements of God emerging all over. In our context in missions, historically, or at least in the last 30, 40 years, there's probably been a dozen major organizations that most of missions fell under. Pioneers, Wycliffe, Frontiers, MAF, these different organizations. Today, there are literally, literally dozens and dozens of ministries that are emerging. 
because many lamps are being lit. There will be many of you here writing songs, poems, and books. It's not going to be a handful of people. There's many people. There's an unction on the arts for, for this generation. Many lip, lamps are going to be lit. So what does it mean when I say you're lit? <laughs> well, I, I, it is a little indescribable, but I think you would know it when you see it. But I'll try and describe it to you. When you are lit, the eyes of your heart become open to God's love and power in a way like you've never known. When you are lit, everything that you've heard for decades from this pulpit, the whole mental framework that has been imparted to us from this pulpit, sinks down into your heart and becomes a vibrant, living, flaming place from which you live. It's not a head experience. It's a heart experience. When you are lit, suddenly, everyone around you, uh, you're looking at them with different eyes. Your neighbors, the immigrant, the lost, the poor, the wandering, the rebellious, the kid who's changed their gender down the street. And your heart, instead of being stirred with anger, disgust, frustration, um, condemnation, your heart is stirred with anguish with the Lord because you have something that would actually make a difference for these people. When you are lit, you will view your resources with different eyes. Your time, your retirement years, your money, your cars, your energy, everything is seen through the grid of how how can I possibly purchase more oil for the lamps so that everyone can know this light? So how do you get lit? <laughs> the million dollar question. First of all, getting lit is not about more information. Getting lit is something that happens from the Spirit of God. Okay, and so the, the, missions com the missions committee, we are praying over you that this weekend, everyone here will be lit in new ways so that we are sent out different people at the end of this conference. But I'm gonna share just a couple ways that we can get lit that I feel like the Lord wanted me to share with you. The first is that we need to clean our lamps through confession. Our lamps are dirty. It comes by virtue of living in a fallen world. It comes by virtue of the fact that we have, in many ways, been in bed with the world. Forgive us, Lord. Spend some time in the book of Revelation. There, God is describing different types of lampstands, some that were lit and some that were not. You can learn a lot there about ways of why you may not be lit. But there's two things that I feel like the Lord wants me to encourage you to consider in terms of confession. The first is we as a people, and I say this for myself too, we need to confess that we have participated in unbelief. 
I think we sometimes like to think our hedging in our faith is just, you know, I'm, I'm just cautious or I'm, I'm hopeful, but, you know, I'm going to hold it loosely. Actually, there are times we're crossing over into unbelief. My daughter, when she moved here and started at Wheaton, it was really interesting that first year was so hard for her to come into the American system and, uh, and, and the evangelical world, to be honest. And, and one of the things she said is, God feels so small in America. For her, she had seen dynamic stories of faith and deliverance and healing and hope. She had experienced God for herself, and now she was in a situation where kids were saying, I study, I, I struggle with anxiety, and I have prayed, and he doesn't heal me. I just, I, I think I just need more medication, you know. Um, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with medication. I'm just saying that there's a, a, a spirit of unbelief that has infiltrated the church. I worked with a woman a year ago who was very much under the spirit of unbelief, and she said, I don't know, I, my motto is that verse, I've got it as a plaque in my kitchen that says, I believe, help my unbelief. And I just said to her, I don't know how to say this in a kind way, <laughs> but you need a new motto. That verse is designed to be a stage of your formation. I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. But you don't live there for the rest of your life. You learn when God shows up, oh, he's here, he delivered me, he showed up. And then next time, you believe. We have lived with unbelief. We have made peace with unbelief. Pull the difficult situations of your own life, the children you know that are not walking with the Lord, the situations that are happening all around you, the things you hear on the news, and put your uh, grid of unbelief. I want, I want you just to pull that out. Lord, am I believing you could actually do something here? If not, confess it. Lord, I confess my unbelief. I don't believe that you can change this. The second thing that we need to confess is just idolatry. We are made for worship. And if we are not worshiping God, we will worship something else. We can worship sugar. That's mine. <laughs> we can worship money. We can worship security or making a name for ourselves. We can worship an image in our mind of the perfect body that we want to have. And it's what drives us. We get up in the morning and we think about it and we're exercising so we can get it. We literally bow down in our mind every day to the image in our mind of the perfect body. This is an idol. We can have the, an idol of the American dream. Some of us are trying to live it out right now. We've got to have the perfect house, the perfect situation, kids that are in the right schools and all of that kind of stuff. Or maybe you're on the other side and you're just yearning for the simpler days. Remember when America was so much better? Remember when people actually believed these things? And actually, in, in some ways, you're still elevating the American dream as this form of idolatry? Please don't hear me as a voice of condemnation. I am offering you these two things as an invitation to ask the Lord, Lord, I want my lamp clean. 
show me anything that needs to be cleaned out of the way so that I can be lit for you. But really the best way for you to get lit is through prayer. Get on your face before the Lord, literally. Our spirits and our emotions take cues from our body. Get on your knees, get on your face, and just keep asking until you know you have been lit, until you know, I believe. I'm not going to live in unbelief anymore. This weekend, you may want to go to someone who you know is lit and have them lay hands on you and pray for you. It's biblical that we bring to life the flames um, by laying hands on each other in prayer. Go to a missionary this weekend to lay hands on you to stir these things to life. Jim, your missions board, your missionaries, we are praying for you this weekend. We are praying for you to get lit. Your light is needed. May the Spirit of God stir the embers of our hearts into flames this weekend. And may his name be exalted in every nation for his glory. Amen. Good evening. My name is Bryce Bouchard, and I married into First Evan. So I married Susan Steen, one of the second of the four Steen girls, and she is actually here for the first time. I don't know where she is, somewhere here, uh, with a broken foot. Hey, babes. Uh, but she made it. Um, she was breakdancing again, and <laughs> Susan said, are you going to tell a joke? And I said, babes, this is First Evan. You haven't been back in a while. Um, well, I can tell you a joke. Uh, so what do you call someone who is trilingual? Sorry, I already messed it up. What do you call someone who speaks three languages? Trilingual. Someone who speaks two languages? Someone who speaks one language? American. Yeah, that's right. So uh, I've worked with the Navigators for 25 years, and I was just telling uh, one of my staff members, I said, this is literally probably one of my greatest highlights of the year is coming back to be at First Evan. We've been all over the country, uh, planted five ministries over the last 25 years, and First Evan is always home for us, uh, not just because we move a lot, but because you guys really treat us like family. And so I'm, I'm humbled and honored to be here. Thanks, Amy, for kicking us off. Um, 200 years ago to the year, 1820, one of my greatest heroes was born. We, we, by the way, I have 10 minutes to talk to you about how the gospel advances. And so I'm going to do my best to do that in 10 minutes, how the gospel advances. One of my heroes, Araminta Ross, was born in Dorchester County, Maryland, in 1820. And she was born to a mother who was a slave and a father who was a free man. And she, as she got married to a man named John, desired that she would have babies that were free. She had a cruel master, and eventually she escaped to Philadelphia. And she made it to Philadelphia, and she started a business. It started small, and it got bigger, 
and she hung out with other people who had been freed. She made connections. She made a name for herself. She made connections with the mayor and lived the rest of her life living the dream. Some of you guys know that's not really what happened. She changed her name to Harriet Tubman. And after she made it to freedom, she went back. Why would she go back? She had made it to freedom. She still had the scars on her back. Why would she go back and risk it, not once, 19 times? She would go back. Why would she do that? Rather than living out her life in comfort, she had earned it. She made it the first time all by herself. No one went with her. God enabled her to go to Philadelphia to find her freedom. And she came back. Why would she do that? Because there's a world of difference between a free woman and a woman who has been freed. Amen? A free woman or a free man thinks about what we're entitled to, to our comforts. Life has been hard. I just want a little medication. But a woman or a man who has been freed cannot help but go for those who are in captivity. And so she went, 19 trips, hundreds of slaves. And she spent her life, each time more risky, each time more danger. We can't start a First Evan Missions Conference without looking at the, the Great Commission. And, and, and please don't check out and go, oh, I got that one. This, this verse, a five-year-old can understand, and yet missiologists can spend their entire lives plumbing the depths of this idea of the Great Commission and what it looks like for us. I love trying to take difficult, complex things and making them simple. And so tonight, Jim has asked me to lend a few brush strokes to the box top of our thinking on missions and how does the gospel advance. And, and Lord willing, we'll look at that globally, which includes, the last time I checked, America is part of the nations, right? Susan and I both wrote that check when we got married. We, we were up here and we said, hey, we're commissioned, we're going overseas. She lived in Russia for a few summers. I lived in Japan, and the Lord never called us. And the Lord said, this is one of the nations that I want you to reach. So tonight, we're gonna look a little bit at what that looks like through one simple verse. The Great Commission, when I first understood this verse, when I came to Christ, some of you guys saw that movie years ago where the little kid says, I see dead people. I, I see lost people. I can't help but see lost people everywhere I go. And I didn't grow up in a church where people would share the gospel, so every chance I got to share the gospel, I would. I'm not an evangelist per se, but I have the heart of an evangelist that I want people to know this one who has freed me, right? And I thought we just have to proclaim, we just have to proclaim to see people come to know Christ, and that's true. But as you look at the scriptures and you look at church history, Proclamation is an essential part of the gospel advancing, right? It's one part, though. It's often so much more complex. Jesus was not just his goal. God's goal was never simply converts. His goal was disciples, implicit in this verse, disciples who would teach their new disciples everything that he had taught them, which is to make disciples, right? That we would raise up 
disciples who are making more disciples. Most often, my experience has been, and I think as I study church history, God uses a process. And it's, the process is real simple. It's usually God's people loving, living life with, and sharing the gospel with the lost people around them. The cool thing is we can do that right here in America as well as overseas. This is beautifully captured in 1 Thessalonians. So loving, sharing their lives, and sharing the gospel. This is captured in 1 Thessalonians 2.8. We loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our very lives as well because you had become so dear to us. They loved, they shared their lives, and they shared the gospel. Those three components in some way or another reflect every mission and missionary that First Evan partners with, right? It may look different. One may have more of an emphasis on proclaiming the gospel. Another may have more of an emphasis on living among. Another more on loving through acts of uh, not just acts of kindness, all of the different things that we had, uh, Lewis and Ann and, and uh, Dana and, and, and all of the missionaries that you're going to hear about this weekend, they're all part of advancing the gospel. So let me give you a simple illustration that has helped me, and I think it will help you. So we have love, gospel, and life. One of my students is a graphic designer. I said, could you, could you do something with this? And he did a great job. So love, gospel, and life. What does it look like if one of those is missing in relationships? God can and does use this all the time, right? In Philippians, Paul says, what difference does it make if someone has wrong motives as long as the gospel goes forth? But typically, God uses all three. If we're missing love, it tends to be legalistic because we feel like we ought to share. Harriet would not have gone back and taking that risk if she just felt like she ought to. She was compelled because she had been freed. We love because he first loved us. So you will never gain a heart for missions overseas or the person that you live next to if you just try to uh, put more guilt on yourself that you should share. But when you realize you have been freed, you share with the people around you because free people free people, right? Free people, free people. He who's been forgiven little loves little, but he who's been forgiven much cannot help but go back and to be among the lost, amen? If we take out, we have love and we have gospel and we take out life, it tends to be shallow. Jesus came and he was among us. We saw what it was. In, in 1 John it says, we saw him, we touched him, or handled him, we heard him. When we're among lost people, they start noticing things, right? You can lead a horse to water, but what? Yeah, if you give them salt, they'll drink. We're salt as we live life with lost people. They're curious as they see our love for them, but it's usually costly, and it's awkward, and it's hard, and you might get attacked a little bit. The longer I remove myself from relationships with those who don't know Christ, the less attractive it is to me and the more overwhelming and intimidating that it is. But when I spend time with them, they see, wow, you're really messed up, but you have a God 
who has freed you. If we have love and life, but we never proclaim the gospel, it's powerless. Can you imagine Harriet Tubman going back down to the South and acting like a free woman? There were free women who had been born free or purchased uh, their freedom. Can you imagine her just acting like a free woman and hoping that someone would notice, you seem really happy. Could you tell me why you're so happy? No, she would proclaim to them, I'm here not just to love you, not just to share my life, but I know someone and I know a way that you can be free. And I want to tell you, she would not care if they were offended. She had come and lived among them and risked her life that they might know the one for whom their soul longed, that they would know freedom. And that's true with us as well, isn't it? Globally, we have those different pieces. And locally, God gives us opportunities to love people, not just to work at loving them, but to be compelled. At 9.36 every morning, my phone goes off. And it's a reminder to me, Lord, let me see the crowds and have compassion like you did in Matthew 9. Give me a heart that sees them. Lord, I don't see them. I don't care. They're in my way. Whatever it is, give me a heart that sees them. Compel me, Lord, that I'd be willing to share my life and share the gospel with them. When you see all these working together, it's really beautiful. You have maximum impact. You have love and life and gospel. And often in the church, God used different, uses different people, doesn't he, to accomplish that. So David's going to come up and share some more stories with us of how that's happening around the world. It's great to be with you guys. Look forward to catching up this weekend. Good evening. Thank you. I am David Frazier, and the bases are loaded. Thank you a lot, Jim, for putting me up here at the end. Um, no pressure. I don't know if I need to tell you what I do. I help churches and individuals be lit, as Amy said, try to teach people to share their whole lives as well as the gospel, uh, both here in Memphis and globally. I've been a part of this church since I was born, and they um, have been behind me every day and has been a huge support to me so that I'm here with you tonight. Um, it's just amazing, these testimonies of these missionaries has just really set us up here for what I wanted to share with you. I might have to read the slides with you since I can't read them here. Um, we're, the theme, as you've seen, is I am sending you. And I teach through slides, so we're gonna, you're going to have to hang on. I'm going to go through some slides um, don't get too comfortable. Don't play with your phone. You're going to have to participate with me tonight. Some of you have gotten settled in. You might have you moving around or standing up. So here we go. Why do we go? Sometimes we go to these global missions conferences, and I've had some people actually tell me, would you mind speaking to our youth or to our college class? I don't think we've actually articulated why we go. So real quick, let's just go for a real reminder. This is one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 67. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us. Haven't we all prayed that? And probably some of you have it knitted and it's framed in your house. We know that part of the verse so well. Do you know the rest of the verse? That your way, O Lord, may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Yeah, that's what missions is all about. Because what it's saying is we're blessed to be a blessing. We pray for blessing. God, bless our nation. Bless our city. Bless us. 
Why? David got it. King David got it. He knows that being blessed in the Old Testament was about being a blessed to the other nations. So what we learn is that this is where we're headed. What is ta ethne? That's the Greek word for all nations. We're heading for revelation this great day around the throne of the Lamb. So that's just a nutshell. That's what global missions is, and that's why we have these emphases, and that's why we do what we do. Our God is a missionary God. If that slide will come up, God is on a mission. Some people say, why do we do missions? Because God is a missionary God. And so that's why we are doing what we're doing. And that's why we're talking about these things tonight. Now, this is an interesting thing here. Paul has a great strategy that really opens up something here. He says, to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named. So Paul, you can imagine how many people said, Paul, stay with us. We're going to start St. Paul's Bible School. We're going to, we want you to be our pastor. But he kept wanting to take the gospel where Christ had been named. And what concept that gives us is this less reached. And so you've heard of this concept, unreached peoples, going to where the gospel isn't. That's driving us. And that is a strategy that Paul introduced. And that's why we do what we do when we go to places where Christ has not been named. Now, here we have this concept of needs versus access. Everyone needs the gospel the same. Amen? We all in the world need the gospel equally. But not everyone has the same access. And that's very important to understand is why we go to other parts of the world or other parts of the city. That's what's driving us is they haven't had a chance. So... Jesus said, the gospel will be preached to all, to all ethne, ta ethne, all peoples, and then the end will come. So Jesus has sent us on this mission, and he's saying it's got to go to the ends of the earth. Well, missiologists are telling us that only one out of every 1,800 believers becomes a cross-cultural missionary. That's a very small number who actually get on the plane and go be missionaries, okay? And they also tell us that more, most of the least reached peoples, these unreached peoples we're talking about, of the the world, most of them are in countries that are hard to get into, either because of the government, either because of the, the language, the religion, or because of where we're from, we're Americans. And so traditional missions is cut off from us. So you might say, well, then the question comes, how does God expect his church to finish the task of reaching ta ethne? How does he expect us to do this? Well, here's Jim Pendleton sitting in his office trying to think about where are we going to find other missionaries? We need to mobilize more missionaries. That's what we're praying for. And he's also asking the question, how are we going to get these unreached people groups, how are we going to get into these countries? How are we going to reach these unengaged peoples? Well, you got our theme here. The Lord said, I am sending you to the nations. And you may say, no, David, he sent you. No, I'm saying he sent you. So what I want you to do right now, I really think this could be really interesting to see. I'm going to call out a vocation a job or a skill set, and if you have that, I want you to stand up. 
Okay? So you're saying, David, it's a little early for a missions conference to have me standing up. So I'm going to call out a vocation. And if you have that, I want you to stand up. Okay? So work with me here. Everyone in the medical or health sciences, if you have any background, any training in that, you say, no, David, I'm retired. No, I want you to stand up anyway. So if you're in medical and health sciences, please stand up. Okay, good. Good. Thank you, Dr. Carter. All right. Engineering. Anything in the engine. Stay seat. Stay standing. Do not sit down. Anyone in the engineering sciences? All engineers. Come on. They're keeping everything wired. All right. Stand up. Everyone that is in teaching or education, those of you that teach or train, even if you're retired, okay. How about business, finance, management? Come on. We're, okay, here we go. Business, finance, money. All right, very good. Arts, music, media, marketing. Come on, keep coming. Anybody in the arts and media? How about the trades, manufacturing, service industries? Come on, keep standing up. Web, tech, data security. Where's my brother? There he is. Now watch out. You're retired, but you're in. Okay. How about theological, ministry, discipleship? That's your background. Okay. Good. Judicial, lawyers, attorneys, law enforcement. Look at this. Counseling, mental care, spiritual care. Anybody left? Okay. Mom, you can stay seated. Um, look at the talent. Look at the vocations. Look at the skill sets we have right here in this room. Okay? Okay, you can sit down now. I'm going to give you a definition of a missionary. Okay? You probably think you know what a missionary is. A missionary is someone who stands up at a missions conference and gets on an airplane and goes somewhere. Okay? I'm setting you up here. You know where I'm going. Basically, the world has changed a lot today. God is moving people all over the world. God is bringing the nations here. He's moving the nations from one nation to another nation. And as I've said to you, we're looking for how do we raise more missionaries and how do we engage these people? Well, let me give you a good definition of a missionary. Anyone, anywhere, in whatever context of life or job, whoa, that's you, but listen, who intentionally crosses linguistic, that's language, cultural or religious barriers in order to engage someone with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Anyone in any job, context, anywhere, who intentionally crosses a cultural, you can do this at work, you can do this at FedEx, you can do this in Nigeria, you can do this in Turkey. Anyone who intentionally crosses linguistic, cultural, or religious barriers in order to engage someone with the gospel. Doesn't that change the way we see missions? So I'm going to show you some interesting things that I've done some research about global challenges. These are the things that the world is saying are, are big problems around the world. But you know what? I think they're pathways they're doorways for us to engage the nations. So let's look at these real quick and I'll be wrapped up. Human development. You know what we need in the world? We need farmers, climate researchers, community developers, surgeons, plastic surgeons, nurses, 
disease researchers, ophthalmologists, water engineers, small business entrepreneurs. That's right. We need all of these people. These are the people that can get into these countries and engage with these people. And we have some right here in the room. Amen? Let me give you another one here. The most vulnerable is what we call this group. Disasters and oppression, war and displacement create staggering numbers of vulnerable populations. We often think of these as refugees. But there are far more displaced people than just refugees. And we don't need to read you all the scriptures that talk about the widow, the fatherless, the orphan, the alien, and the poor. And we have skill sets right here in this room that can help engage with these people, serve these people, and bring the gospel. Are you following with me? Do I hear an amen? Okay. Human trafficking, second biggest, second fastest criminal industry growing in the world. $31 billion business worldwide. 40 plus million victims. It's about being trapped in forced labor. labor. This is not just about prostitution. Yes, and many children and women and girls are trapped in these. We have people in our church that are entering into law enforcement and the law firms and becoming attorneys to tackle these things. And you say, oh, David, I don't know, this sounds a little bit like social gospel to me. Are we just going to free these people? What do you think this young girl needs? What do you think she needs right now? She needs freedom from this slavery, and she needs Jesus Christ. So we don't want to separate these things. How about education? All those teachers that are here. What are we learning about the world? That educating people reduces the risk of conflict by 20% in the world every year. Teaching an adult woman to read is the most reliable method of increasing every other measure of development in the world. Thank God for our teachers. Thank you for those that are teaching here. And we can, we can teach internationals here. We can teach, we can go to other countries and use education. English is now the most widely learned second language in the world. That's how I got to Turkey. That's what I was doing in Turkey, is teaching English. Yes, I was bringing the gospel. How about, here's one more, here's another one. Technology, all of what we've learned is that this is changing the world, is it not? It changes societies. It empowers people for change and advancement, but it also brings the gospel. People are sitting in small villages around the world reading their Bibles on these things. They're out in the desert watching a Jesus film on a telephone. Pretty amazing. Discipleship and leadership development. That's what we're finding too, that the churches worldwide are desperately in need of people to come to do discipleship, training in servant leadership, trauma, marriage, basic Bible study. We asked this pastor in India, what's your number one need? He said, marriage, counseling, trauma. People are stuck with a lot of the sin that has happened in their lives, and they need us to come over and do these trainings. If I can find out where I am, what number am I on? I'm on number six. How about number seven? Urbanization. Over half the world lives in cities. Every week, 1.4 million people leave their rural homes for the cities for a better life. 
to escape poverty, war, disaster, and persecution. How does this change things? Look what God is doing. These people are out in these little bitty villages. How can we ever reach them in these countries? And God is bringing them to the city. They're coming for jobs. They want one of these, right? And so how does that change missions? It means we go to these cities and we use our skills to engage them. This is changing the way we do missions right now. We're focusing on these cities. And then finally, global migration. Oh my goodness. Natural disasters, conflicts, wars, as well as education and jobs have created unprecedented movement in peoples. People are moving around the world today like never before. Now we're sending people over to Greece to work with 1040 window people. We have people going to cities in Europe. We have people here in Memphis that are engaging 1040 window people that have come all the way from places like Afghanistan. She said, what God is doing is he's saying, I have this feeling you're not going to make it to all these countries. You're not going to get out, out to these little villages. You're not going to get in all these countries. But what is God saying? I'm going to build my church. And if I have to bring them to you, and I have to break down all these walls, do you see what he's doing? Is this God's end game? If you've heard that concept. Is this the way God's going to wrap things up? I think that's what he's doing. We're always trying to figure out, if you look at the numbers, they're staggering. How are the needs around the world and how many, how billions of people have never heard of Jesus? How is this going to end? I think we need to embrace what God is doing. These challenges are there for us as pathways. And we need to embrace what he's doing, which is shaking the world up. And he's moving people all around. So I challenge you tonight. What's in your tool belt? You're like, oh, Dave, I live here. I don't, I, I don't, I'm not going anywhere, David. You don't have to go anywhere, by the way. God says, I'll bring them to you. I asked this Afghan pastor once, what do you think about God bringing all the, all the nations here? You know, and he said, it's very simple, my brother. You did not bring it to us, so God is bringing us to you. I was like, okay, that's pretty straightforward. What pathway has God provided for you to use your vocation? your skill set, your resources, to touch, heal, empower, and evangelize a broken world. Hearing about this school, you know, when you hear about this school in the Ukraine, you stop and you go, I thought he was over there to share Jesus. Did you hear what he wants to do? You hear what his city needs? They need a school. Over in Turkey, David, you think we need a school over there in Ankara? Yes, we need education and a school. What about Dr. Carter? Dr. Carter, you're a doctor. I... Gee, I thought you were a missionary. What? What a silly thing to say. We have to embrace these pathways. This is how we're going to connect with these people and serve them and love them. So I end with this slide. You'll get a kick out of this one. Okay. If the cap fits you, join God's army. That's what I'm trying to say. If you've got that skill set, if you see people here at the missions conference that have these skill sets, challenge them. Have you thought about doing what you're doing here somewhere else? Have you thought about using your skill set to engage the nations here? And when you see missionaries that are engaged in, what are you doing over there? How are you engaging with these refugees? Through trauma, through teaching, through education, helping their physical needs. This is how we get there with the gospel. Thanks for letting me share.